Welcome to Future Forecast, a podcast about technology, leadership, and sustainability with leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringnas, and today we'll be talking about the invaluable lessons of becoming a great entrepreneur. We're talking to an infamous Silicon Valley author, investor, and business advisor, Guy Kawasaki. Guy is the chief evangelist of Canva and previously the chief evangelist of Apple. He's written 15 books, including The Art of the Start, Selling the Dream, and his latest Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. Thank you so much for joining us, Guy. Thank you. Thank you. What else can I do? Norway, uh, the land of the world's best sushi. The, sorry, what? You think Norway has the best sushi? Yep. How come? I don't know. I I fell in love with a place called Alex Sushi in Oslo. And then the Alex of Alex Sushi went and started another sushi restaurant, I don't know, about one kilometer away. I can't remember the name of it, but but <laughs> I love I love sushi in Norway. Yeah, uh, Alex Sushi is pretty famous here. It's uh, it's good, and we've got some new sh- sushi shops as well. So you should definitely uh, come over here just for the sushi, and maybe we can uh, do a live podcast interview the next time. But um, let's dive right in because uh, you you really have a great title, which isn't as common here in Norway, uh, evangelist. And uh, it, it almost sounds a little bit religious, but as a former podcast guest, uh, Peter Hinson said, uh, technology is the new religion. Can you can, can you tell us what your job as an evangelist entitles? Well, evangelism comes from a Greek word meaning bringing the good news. So I bring the good news. Uh, at the start of my career, I brought the good news of Macintosh, making people more creative and productive. And at the end of my career, I'm bringing the good news of Canva, which is democratizing design. So that's what an evangelist does, brings the good news. Cool. Well, you're doing a good job at bringing the good news. <laughs> so uh, I want to dive into your early days because you had the perhaps, I guess it's suggestive saying terrifying honor of working with Steve Jobs at Apple twice from 1983 to 1987 and then again from 95 to 97. And uh, I guess everyone who's seen or read up on Steve Jobs know that knows that he was a tough boss and many argue that was part of the foundation for his success. And I read in a recent blog post of yours that he would divide people into two groups, insanely great and crappy. Uh, and uh, you yourself would go from believing that he was impressed to being convinced that he would fire you. Now, what was your role at Apple and what was it like working with Steve Jobs? And oh my God, I'm building in a third question here. Why did his working style result in such tremendous success? So my role at Apple, I worked at Apple twice, uh, 83 to 87, I was software evangelist. So my job was to convince developers to create products for Macintosh, you know, Macintosh compatible products. The second time I was Apple's chief evangelist and that time it was to maintain the Macintosh cult and community. So you were obviously working with Steve Jobs when you were there. What was that like? It was amazing. Yeah, he, you know, extremely demanding, very difficult to work for, but such a visionary. Uh, you know, there's there's been very few people like him before, and very few people like him after. I mean, it was a privilege and an honor to work for him. Why do you think that the way that he worked uh, was such a contributor to the success? Well, because I mean, he he was the reason for the success that. He had this vision. He had this passion, and you know, lots of people throw those words around quite commonly. But he truly, he was the real deal. Um, it, it was an amazing, amazing time. 
I guess it's just kind of thinking, I mean, today when you read a lot of leadership books and you were saying that people throw these terms around all the time, but you read that people should, you know, be super inclusive and uh, very friendly and be not very hierarchical. And I, I guess, and not knowing this because I didn't work with him, it doesn't seem like maybe that was his core values or... <laughs> <laughs> That's to put it mildly, yes. So, um, you know... He well, the rules didn't apply to him, and uh, I, you know, I can't tell you that everyone could manage this way or anyone else should manage this way. But he made it work, and I think one of the dangers of being a a, a student or studying Steve Jobs is that you look at all his things and you try to emulate him, and basically you will not be a Steve Jobs; you'll just be a jerk. Mm. The key is to recognize, you know, what was causative and what was merely correlation. So I'm not recommending that you emulate everything Steve Jobs did. Let me say it again. I'm not recommending that you emulate everything Steve Jobs did, but he is an example of the so-called black swan, but there are not too many black swans. Do you have to be a special kind of person to be able to work with him, do you think? Well, yes. I mean, uh, you you had to be be smart, street smart, you know, all kinds of smart, technical smart. Uh, you had to be, uh, you know, kind of weather resistant. Uh, you could not easily take offense. You could not, you know, be this kind of totally sensitive person where every um, negative thing you know, sends you off the deep end. Uh, you had to be tough. You had to be smart and tough. Actually, building off of that, I read in another blog post that you highlight 11 lessons from your time at Apple that I believe that any entrepreneur, myself included, could learn a lot from. Uh, and I want to mention a few of these, uh, and hopefully you can elaborate a bit on them. Uh, and the first is, I guess, obvious when you think about it, but I'm sure that you have more thoughts on it. And that is that only excellence matters. Now, what do you mean by that? Yes. So I think way before it was fashionable or politically correct, uh, Steve Jobs was sort of blind to superficialities such as race, color, creed, religion, gender, sexual orientation. He just did not care. Uh, All he cared about was whether you were competent or not. And, you know, is that not the way the world should work? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and, And would you say that that should be the core value of any entrepreneur, any leader, just focus on the excellency? But knowing that we have, I, I work on um, gender equality, gender bias, uh, stereotypes, and so on. How would you kind of go by or beyond the fact that we know that we have a lot of biases that do affect the way we perceive people of different diversity aspects? Well, I think, it, you know, you just... I don't know. I mean, life is so difficult. Work is so difficult, and building a team is so difficult. You know, why would you make it harder on yourself? You should make it as easy as you can. And one of the ways is to make it as easy as you can is to build the best team. And one of the best ways to build the best team is not care about stuff that doesn't matter. So, you know, to take the extreme opposite, if you say, "Well, I'm going to build the best team of," tall white males who went to Ivy League schools, well, guess what? He just made your job about 10 times harder. Mm. The second lesson that you uh, bring up is that customers can't tell you what they need. 
And uh, when I read that, a famous quote comes to mind. Uh, and I am not sure if this quote is actually real or if it's been created, but it's commonly cited. It's Henry Ford saying that if you ask people what they want, they would ask for faster horses. Uh, and yes. in a world where user research and UX is at the core of everything that we do, how do you really balance giving people what they say that they want and then at the same time breaking the status quo and then revealing something entirely new that they didn't knew, know that they wanted but then really do want? My recommendation is kind of related to the product lifecycle. So if you are truly trying to jump to the next curve to innovate, uh, I don't think you can ask your current customers how to do that because they're going to tell you well I want a bigger faster cheaper Apple II I want a bigger faster cheaper Macintosh I want a bigger faster cheaper iPhone and you know none of the Apple II customers would tell you to make a Macintosh and none of the Macintosh customers would tell you to make an iPhone and now none of the iPhone customers will tell you what to make in the next thing and so when you want to truly jump to the next curve to create a product category Asking your current customers is suboptimal, if not foolish. Now, having shipped the next curve and you've shipped your iPhone, iPod, iPad, Mac, uh, then you have to listen to people as they tell you how to fix it and make it better. So you have to flip a bit. You have to go from ignoring people to listening to people. And that is a very hard bit to flip. I totally understand where you're coming from. And and I guess this is kind of a digression, but... Uh Everything that's happening now in technology, a lot of things that may be morally or ethically questionable, you know, with gene editing and all this kinds of stuff. I mean, where do you balance that? I mean, do you kind of just not listen to what people say that they want and then still bring it to market and then they want it? Where, where Do you have any thoughts on that, where the world is going in those terms? I, I you know, th that's why entrepreneurship and innovation is hard, right? So you... I guess you can't at one extreme completely ignore people. On the other hand, you can't – on the other extreme, you can't just listen to what they say and build better, faster, cheaper sameness. So, I mean, therein lies the challenge. But if all you do is to continue to revise your quote-unquote Apple II, then you will die. I mean, you know, who's using Kodak or Polaroid anymore? Hmm. No, they went out of business, uh, was it 2014 or something? It's a while ago. I don't, I don't know if they're technically out of business, but the, the point is that if you were Kodak and you said to your current customers, what do you want? They would say a better kind of film, right? Deeper colors or I don't know, whatever. Whatever you'd want, faster film. They would not say build a digital camera because they, they didn't know what a digital camera was because it hadn't been invented yet. And the irony of all of this is that Kodak invented the digital camera. I know, I know. And they knew it was coming, but they didn't think that the anyone outside of the professional market would adopt it. So they, they lied on the lazy side, I guess you could say. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I guess that's one interpretation that they didn't think anybody but a professional would buy it. But I, I would say that the, the problem was deeper is that they refused to accept that there would be a better way or people would want a better way because they were so close to making film with chemicals that they could not see the next curve. Exactly. So having, you might not be able to answer this because you, it's a while since you were at Apple, 
But uh, given the fact that, you know, you were talking about how product development in Apple has gone from, you know, Macintosh and iPod and then iPhone and then iPad. What's next after iPhone? Do you have any kind of fantasy as to like what the next revolution is going to be? I have no idea. <laughs> and if I had an idea, I'm not sure I would tell you. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, therein lies the key that uh, you know, if, if, if I knew, I would arguably be doing it. And so uh, there, there's sort of two kinds of talents, right? So one talent is making that future. Another kind of talent is recognizing the future when you see it. And I just hope and pray that I have the second because I clearly don't have the first. <laughs> you also write that uh, changing your mind is a sign of intelligence. And then you exemplify that when Jobs announced the iPhone that we just talked about, it was a closed program programming system that uh, was going to ensure that it was safe and reliable. But then a year later, he opened it up to third-party developers and the App Store was created. And then then the sales really went up. And this was kind of a 180-degree reversal, and uh, you write a sign of intelligence and courage. And you also say that one of the biggest lessons in your career is that understanding that the best products don't win. Uh, this is, again, two questions in one. Why don't the best products win, and why is it so important to have the intelligence to change your mind? Well, the the best products don't necessarily win or you know win immediately because... I think to a large degree, sufficiency is sufficient. And so if you're kind of, you know, fat, dumb and happy with what the status quo is, then it's very difficult to get people to move off that and change inertia. That's the challenge. So I wish I wish it were true that you, know, you simply show up with a better mousetrap and the world would beat a path to your door. I don't think that's true. And I could almost make the case the better the, the mousetrap, the harder it may be to get people to change their mind. Mm. The reason why it's important to change your mind is because probably you're going to get it wrong the first few times. So when iPhone was introduced, it was a closed system. You know, Only Safari plugins would work with it. And a year later, it was an open system. You can write any kind of app that you want. That's a 180-degree reversal, and yeah, iPhone would not have succeeded if all you could do was add Safari plugins to it. So uh, you take your best shot, you jump to the next curve, you create what you think people will need or what you think you can convince people they will need, then you ship it, and then they actually tell you how to fix it, and you listen. So it, you know, it's a series of jumps and then buffing and refinishing and fixing and renovating and then you jump and then you start all over again so um we asked our audience on instagram to suggest a question for you and uh i i chose this one what's your favorite enlightenment an experience or piece of information or something like that that really changed the way that you look at something in life hmm well, certainly the, the most pivotal experience is Apple, right? Mm. Who knew that two guys in a garage could create a trillion-dollar company? And who knew that a company that many people thought would die would become the trillion-dollar company? And who knew that you, know, you could have a company that was basically engineering-driven, building the best products that the founder could think of, you know, completely not marketing-driven, 
and to become a trillion dollar company. I mean, <laughs> you could spend your whole life just thinking about what Apple has done. Of course, the danger is that, you know, maybe only Apple could have done it. So, you know, that's not a good example if, you know, you're the only person that could ever do that and then now everybody else aspires to to be you. But at least it's a source of great inspiration. Yeah, definitely. And and on that note, actually, because you were talking about how like two guys in a garage are able to create something as big as Apple. And in today's world, I don't have the hard stats on this, but I do believe that there are a lot more people becoming entrepreneurs uh, than going into corporate or nonprofit uh, today. I would think so, just given the fact that it's so much easier to start anything today because of, you know, the technology and everything. But if you were to come to Norway and do a speech for, uh, you know, 500 students about to graduate from, you know, some very prestigious school here, what would you what would you give them in terms of life lessons? Well, life lesson number one would be try to extend your school as long as possible and live off your parents as long as possible because <laughs> this is going to be the best part of your life. Uh, number two would be don't try to make the perfect selection for the first job that you get out of college. That you know you are going to change ten times. So don't make yourself crazy thinking you're going to find the perfect job that you're going to stay at the rest of your life because it ain't going to happen. And then three, I would say don't get married too early. Uh, I've never met anybody who got married too late. And if you're an entrepreneur, focus on the prototype, not on the pitch. <laughs> Okay, that's actually excellent news, uh, or uh, not news, Which but uh, <laughs> uh, focus on the prototype, not on the pitch. Uh, I was just in an accelerator, and uh, yeah. there is a lot of mixed advice, I guess you get. But uh, when I when I hear it from Guy Kawasaki, I will listen to that. Um, <laughs> okay. So you you have a lot of really good quotes online. I mean, doing my research on you, there was just so much excellent advice compromised into small sentences and I just want to uh, recite four of them. Uh, never ask people to do something you would not do. It's better to be lucky than smart. Always default to yes, drop everything when your boss asks you to do something. First of all, how do you come up with all these great quotes and get them out there? And do you have anything to elaborate to that list? What's your favorite quote? How I came up with those quotes... You know, it took a mere 40 years. Um, so, I don't know, one every 10 years. I don't know. I mean, I write, I speak. I, I also do. I don't just write and speak. And so the, these things, you know, occur to me. And the, actually, you know, my book, Wise Guy, is basically a compilation of all the wisdom I've accomplished or all the wisdom I've acquired that I'm trying to pass on to others. So Wise Guy, the book, is just... <laughs> page after page of these things mm. so you know it just takes a while just you have to be in the game i don't know it's i have to say sometimes uh people send me their drafts of their books and they're like 19 or 20 years old right and they're writing a book you know how to succeed and i want to say to them like you're 20 years old how the hell do you know how to succeed you like what what makes you think anybody cares about what you think you already know <laughs> and so but i never say that I mean, what do you say? I say, oh, very interesting, which is a <laughs> euphemism for I don't like it. I mean, <laughs> uh oh. So, if I ever uh -oh. tell you that's a very interesting idea, that means I don't like it. Okay. Do you think that's like a general feedback term in Silicon Valley? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, somebody says uh, it's an interesting idea. It has potential. Uh, there's always a but, right? And the but is, you know, but I'd like to see it when you have traction or but come back to me when you have a lead investor or but, you know, basically come back when you don't need me because when you don't need me, that's when I want to invest. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I can recognize that. How do you see or identify a really great entrepreneur when they come to you? How do you know? Listen, I don't know if I know how to do that because I've been wrong more than I've been right. And I do believe the richest vein is for two guys in a garage, two gals in a garage, or a guy and a gal in a garage creating the product that they want to use, which is very different from saying you know, two MBAs who worked at Goldman Sachs who uh, now are creating a product based on their analysis of you know marketing trends. Uh, I think that is the worst vein for a new product. So that's as good as it gets. And I would also say that in, in the don't don't limit your investments or don't limit a startup that you go to work for to only those that you fit in and like the people. Because I could make the case that successful founders are on the spectrum of Asperger's, ADHD, and OCD. Social misfits make great entrepreneurs is what I'm trying to tell you. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I hope we don't stereotype that so that everyone feels like they have to be a social misfit if they're going to be an entrepreneur. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm saying, so if somebody listens to this podcast and say, oh, yeah, I'm a real, I really fit in well socially, but for now on, I'm going to be an <laughs> asshole because guy says that will make me an entrepreneur. That's not what I'm saying. I'm glad you uh, you said <laughs> that because <laughs> I, I don't want that to have the effect on people, but it's good yeah. to say that, you know, entrepreneurs can basically be anyone and often people who are different is because they want to bring something well, different to the world, right? So well, let, Let's just say that I doubt that Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Larry Ellison or Larry or Sergey or any of these, you know, even Zuckerberg, I doubt that any of them were the high school hero quarterback or the homecoming king or voted Mr. Popularity in high school. So um, I also wanted uh, to talk a bit about social media and Canva because I, I mean, I used Canva a lot when I was uh, living in New York and it was like revolutionary at the time. I just loved it and it's still really a fantastic tool. What are your best tips to succeed on social media? And I know that's kind of a blah question, but is it, do you have, for people who want to grow their audience, who want to get their product out or build their own personal brand, what do you tend to tell them? Okay, so I, I have uh, two tips. So number one is add value. So you want to add value to people's social media timelines. This means by creation of content or curation of content. But basically, following you should be useful, valuable, entertaining, you know, whatever. But it should serve some purpose. And so it's about posting what people want to read as opposed to what you want to say. It's two very different things. So that would be number one, you know, add value. And the second thing, and you can quote me, is basically the three simplest words you need to succeed, which is post good shit. <laughs> you post good shit, everything else falls into place. PGS, you heard it here. So I guess 
I'm part of a generation that, you know, if you're active on social media, this post good shit thing becomes so overconsuming that I see that a lot of people are spending just too much time trying to be that person that is posting good shit and adding a lot of value and kind of forget their own lives or living their own lives or they're not very present. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, do you do you have any thoughts on that? Nope, not my no. problem. Not your problem. You know, I mean, you know, that's somewhat semi-facetious, but listen, if if you want to be good at social media, if you want to be good at music, you want to be good at surfing, at hockey, at programming, at writing, at making movies, guess what? It has to be an obsession. I mean, in society, you know, you look at someone who practices piano 10 hours a day and you say, what a great, you know, what a great musician applying himself or herself or whatever. And then you look at somebody who's trying to be a great social media person doing it 10 hours a day and you say, oh, that person has a sickness. So why is the person who's trying to perfect social media sick and pathetic and, you know, whatever, where someone who's practicing piano 10 hours a day is dedicated and hardworking? Like, explain to me why there's a difference. That's really interesting. It's because you think social media, not you, I'm not saying you, you, but because you, the person who's saying this, thinks that social media is this dumbass thing where people are posting, you know, selfies of you with food or something, whereas practicing piano, that's a high, you know, high road, intellectually stimulating good thing. Says who? And I, I mean, if you look at chronologically, you know, you'd say, okay, to, to just stick to music for a second, you'd say, all right, so this person practices the piano 10 hours a day, you know, Chopin, Beethoven, and all that. This other play- person is playing the electric guitar and just riffing and, you know, Jimi Hendrix wannabe. And, like, why is this person wasting his life or her life on acid rock and, you know, whatever? Why isn't this person a classical pianist and all that, right? But then now, you look back and you say, wow, Jimi Hendrix was genius. Huh. <laughs> so, who, who are we to judge what people's passions are? You know what? I think that's really excellently put, and I, I fully agree. I think uh, bloggers and people who are active on social media generally are very stigmatized, and uh, I agree. It's a job, and it takes a lot of time, um, and you know, in order to get yeah. good at it and in order to build a following, you have to dedicate time. Um, yeah, and, and exactly. Like, so, you know, I, I just, I'm making this example up and all that, but if you look at someone like I, Justine, okay, or... Casey Neistat. Is it Neistat? Casey Neistat. I think it's Casey Neistat. So Casey Neistat or I Justine, right? So you say, well, Casey Neistat, he like gets these cameras and unboxes them and takes pictures and all that, you know, whatever. Well, like, what's the big deal? Uh, yeah, he, he's not like music composer or something like that. And I Justine goes and unboxes the Tesla, you know, flamethrower. And, you know, mm-hmm. what is the art in that? Well, tell you something, man. You try to be I Justine or Casey Neistat and do that and get millions of people to get entertained by that. That ain't that easy. Those people are artists in their own right. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And I think uh, a lot of people stigmatizing that one doesn't necessarily have the information of what it's like. And it's also a very new kind of world. It's a new kind of skill. 
uh, we're not entirely sure how to relate to it yet. Um, but as you as you use the example with the musician that you look back on and think was was incredible, we might feel the same about uh, about the people that are super successful on social media today. So definitely, I think that's uh, I think that's a really really good way of putting perspective on it. So thank you for that, guy. I'm so sorry, but we have to wrap up. Uh, this has <laughs> just been so fun to speak to you. I kind of went off on all different tangents, so I hope you uh, survived that. But we have three quick questions. We have three quick yeah. questions to uh, to round this up. And um, one of them is, uh, if you could give your 20-year-old self one piece of advice, what would you tell you? Don't quit Apple. <laughs> really? Well, I quit Apple twice. I mean, probably cost me 300 million bucks. Oh, God. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know if that many people can relate to it. Do you have anything more uh, universal? Well, okay, but yeah. So there is some wisdom there, right? So, you know, it may be that instead of searching for greener pastures, you should make the pasture you're in greener. That's the lesson there. Mm, we have uh, something similar to that in Norwegian. Do you have any book, podcast, or anything else that you would like to recommend? Well, my favorite book ever is a book called If You Want to Write by Brenda Euland. Uh, it's it's written for writers, but you can apply any creative skill to that book. It will set you free. Hmm, cool. Which one of all of your books is your number one recommendation to the listeners of this podcast? I would say that if you're an entrepreneur starting a company, the book you should read is The Art of the Start 2.0. If, if you are a young person, not sure where you're going, what you're doing, read Wise Guy because there's a lot of life lessons that you can apply in many, many areas. And uh, if you're particularly in sales, you know, face-to-face, -face, uh, ha have to make a deal, all that kind of stuff, read Enchantment. Cool. Thank you. So where should people go to follow you online? Well, it depends what they want. If they follow me on Instagram, they're going to see the slices of my life, surfing, that kind of stuff. If they want to see what I'm feeling particularly intellectually passionate about, go to LinkedIn. But I will tell you right now that I believe that America is in a constitutional crisis, and I believe it is my moral obligation to resist the current administration. So my LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter feeds are very political right now. Well, I'm glad that you're doing uh, your part. Uh, <laughs> I wish there were even more of you because uh, I'm right behind you there. No <laughs> doubt about that. So, uh, Guy, thank you so much for, for joining the Future Forecast. I really, really appreciate it. It has really been fun. Definitely. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to Future Forecast. Tune in next week for more exciting insights on the future. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and share it with anyone you think may find it interesting. Also, if you have suggestions to who we should interview, give us a shout out on the Oslo Business Forum or Isabel Ringness Instagram. Talk to you next week.